seats, find in your Bibles Revelation 19. I actually intended to sing that hymn after the devotion, but I messed that one up, Hannah. But uh, we'll just have to flip it around because we're going to see that uh, the refrain in that hymn uh, is found at least in some way or another in the first ten verses of Revelation 19. Now, just by way of reminder before we read these verses, chapters 17 to 19 form the sixth of seven cycles that describe the time between Christ's first and second comings. And it's for that reason, brethren, that we've seen salvation and judgment when Jesus comes back over and again throughout these previous chapters. And so we'll see chapter 19 actually has two things in it, and uh, we're going to divide it up and consider the first this week and the second next week. In verses 1 to 10, fundamentally, we have the wedding of the Lamb, and then in verses 11 to the end of the chapter, the destruction of his enemies. So we find again him coming back, his second coming. This is what this chapter describes, Jesus' second coming. Again, we find it in the book of Revelation. And we find that his second coming will bring both salvation, the first half of the chapter, and destruction, the second half of the chapter. Furthermore, by way of introduction, before we read these verses, in verses 1 to 6, we find the the word alleluia four times. You might know that it comes from the Old Testament Hebrew word hallelujah, which both means praise the Lord. And thus, hallelujah, as we find it in the Old Testament And Alleluia, as we find it here in this chapter, mean the exact same things because it's the exact same word just brought from one language over to another. It means praise the Lord. All right, Revelation 19, 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God. All you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Verse 7, Revelation 19. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now there's basically in these ten verses two fundamental reasons the saints in heaven are praising the Lord. 
And I want to use those as our headings tonight. For his judgment, verses 1 to 6, and his salvation, verses 7 to 10. Notice in verses 1 to 6, they praise him for his judgments. That is, the 24 elders and the creatures, the living creature, the four living creatures, that is the saints and the angels, are presently in heaven, falling before the throne of God and praising him because of his judgments to come. Now, many Christians find it difficult to praise God for his judgments upon his enemies. And the reason why, brethren, is because we're not perfected yet like those elders and living creatures who are in heaven. One day we will be with them and we will be praising God for his judgments. But if we're going to be praising God for his judgments, then surely, brethren, it's not wrong. In fact, it's in every way right to praise him for his judgments even now. Verse 2, for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. We find at least two reasons in this verse why God is praised for his judgments. First, they are true. And secondly, they are righteous. Notice they are for true, verse 2, and righteous are your judgments. This is why they're praising him because his judgments are in the first place true. Now by true here is meant truthful or perhaps we could even somewhat paraphrase it as faithful. His judgments are true to his character and word. Or put another way, they are the result of his faithfulness. God has promised to repay those who mistreat his people and not to do so would be dishonest or unfaithful, would be untruthful. So God is true. His judgments are true to his character and to his word. And that's why at the end of verse 2 you find, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. That is, God has avenged his people. He has judged his enemies because in part they mistreated and shed the blood of his people. And so they're praising God because God is fulfilling that which he promised. Brethren, if God didn't judge the wicked, then he would be untruthful or a lie in contrast to the truth, or he would be unfaithful. So they're praising him because his judgments are true. And then they're secondly righteous. By this, of course, is meant they're right and just as defined by God himself and his law. It would be unjust if God failed to judge sinners. Justice and righteousness are things to rejoice over. Brother. And if we're thinking rightly, we ought to even rejoice over the measure of justice and righteousness that we see in our court system. If somebody did something heinous, they ought to be punished. 
If somebody takes the life of another person, murders that person, then their life ought to be taken, and that would be a just thing. It would be unjust not to put that murderer to death. That should grieve us, brother. When wicked people get off, it's a symptom or a sign that the system is broken. There's an unjust judge or jury. That should grieve us. But God isn't unjust or unrighteous, but he's perfectly just and righteous. And thus his judgments, brethren, are a cause for rejoicing. Now, again, I know it's not easy sometimes to think in terms of that because we have a mixture of the flesh within us and we see but dimly and we understand but dimly. But there's coming a time when we will see fully, we will understand fully, and then we will take our place alongside the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and we will praise God for his true and righteous judgments. But I want to spend most of our time on verse 7 to 10, and where we find that they praise him for his salvation. Now, this salvation is described in terms of a wedding, complete with a groom, a bride, and a supper. Those are things that you ordinarily find at a, we- uh, at a uh, wedding, at least the first two, but ordinarily all three. So notice first the groom. Let us be glad and rejoice, verse 7, and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now this might seem strange, children, if you think about it. Who would want to marry a lamb? Lambs don't marry. Well, this lamb obviously does. And so the question that needs here answering is this. Why is the groom, why is Christ here described As a lamb, the marriage of the lamb. This lamb has a wife or a bride who's readied herself. Well, we'll come to her in a moment. But for now, we have to wrestle a little bit with the groom and answer the question, why is he here specifically likened or described as a lamb? Well, first of all, if you notice uh, in the previous verses that I've read and uh, as we'll get next week to verse 11 and following in this chapter, in the whole book, but in this chapter, in a specific sense, he's described as more than a lamb. He's a just judge, verse 2. He's the all-powerful God, verse 6. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, verse 16. So while he is a lamb, he's obviously and evidently more than a lamb. But why is he specifically described here as a lamb? Well, I suggest it's because of what the imagery of a lamb teaches us. Why does scripture describe Jesus as a lamb? Why does this particular text describe him accordingly? Well, if Christ was only a righteous judge and only a sovereign king, there could never be any marriage 
between him and guilty sinners. If Jesus was only or merely or purely the righteous judge and the sovereign Lord God, King of kings and Lord of lords, then there can never be any matrimony, there can never be any connection, any covenant made, any relationship that exists between him and guilty sinners. Because remember what we've just seen. His judgments are true. His judgments are righteous. And if there was never any blood that was shed to atone for our sins, then God can only and would always deal with us as guilty sinners. And we would fall beneath those judgments. In other words, the only thing that separates us from those who are the recipients of his judgments in the first verses here, and as we'll see next week very graphically in verse 11 and following, is the blood of the Lamb. Only the blood of the Lamb, brethren, can allow us as guilty sinners to be wed to Jesus Christ, who is the just judge. Who is the all-powerful God? Who is the King of kings and Lord of lords? Perhaps I can put it like this. He's not only the lion, but he's, in addition to that, the, the lamb. And brethren, if he was only the lion, if he was only the judge, judge, the powerful God, and the King of kings and Lord of lords, and not in addition to that, the lamb, then we would all be judged By his righteous judgments. It really goes back to what I've said. If you remember. This last Lord's Day in the morning service. Christ purchased his bride with his own blood. Remember we saw that phrase. God purchased the church with his own blood. And I said there that he. This of of necessity means. That he became a man because only man can shed his blood. God cannot shed his blood. God cannot die on behalf of sinners. God cannot because he has no body. He has no blood and he cannot suffer or change. He cannot redeem sinners with his own blood. He cannot buy them with his own blood unless he becomes a lamb. Unless he becomes a man. And this is why we find that the bride has made herself ready. And she's been given fine linen, verse 8, that's clean and bright. Now I want to come back to that in a moment. But why is her linen, why are her garments clean and bright? But because they've been cleansed, they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And this is why the land, this is why Christ is here specifically spoken of as or described as a lamb. Now, this is underscored in the Old Testament by what's called the bride price. It's translated that way in, in the New King James. It's actually translated dowry in, um, in some of our translations. Now, you can... Look up the text. There's many of them. Exodus 22, 16, and 17. Deuteronomy 22, 28, 29. Those are just some of the texts that speak of this bride price. Now, in biblical days, I think different than, than uh, much of, of modern day, 
It was the groom who paid the dowry to the bride's wife and not the other way around. I think that's kind of flipped, isn't it? Uh, At least we think of it usually flipped the other way. But in biblical days and in our Old Testament, we find that the groom paid for the bride. By the way, you can also find that in uh, 1 Samuel 18.25, where David had to pay for Saul's daughter, Michael. And if you remember, he uh, paid in the form of uh, Philistine foreskins. But he had to pay a dowry for her, a bride price. And what dowry or bride price did Jesus pay for his bride, but he shed his blood? He purchased her with his own blood. Brethren, that's an infinitely valuable dowry. We sing about this in many of our hymns, but think of this one for an example. Hymn 270, the first verse, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. And that's why it's the marriage of the lamb and not the marriage of the lion. Sinners can't marry a lion. They can only marry a lamb. Now, they can marry a lion who's a lamb. But they can't just marry a lamb. Just a man is not able to save us. Nor is God alone without a human nature able to shed his blood and purchase his people. So he's a lion and a lamb. He's the lion slash Lamb. All right, so that's the groom. Notice, secondly, the bride, verse 8. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, the first thing that comes to mind when I read this is you would think that it wouldn't say the righteous, that the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, but the righteous acts of the Savior. Right? Isn't that the first thing we want to say? Why is the bride's fine linen described as the righteous acts of the saints? Well, surely, brethren, this bride is arrayed in the righteousness of the Savior. In fact, there's another place in the book of Revelation in chapter 14 where it speaks about the, the, the bride having washed her garments in the blood of the Lamb. But here it's just underscoring the fact that the salvation that Jesus purchased for his bride, that which he gives her when she gets him, contains both our justification and our sanctification. And the latter of those two, our sanctification, oftentimes is evidence of the former, that is our justification. Right? That's what we learn from James 2, uh, where we read about faith without works is dead. We're saved, we're justified by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. Good works 
always accompany salvation. And so when it speaks about righteousness here, it's really speaking about our righteous deeds. In fact, that's really how the construction of the Greek is better translated. Our righteous deeds. Well, I referenced or at least alluded to Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you're saved through faith and even the faith itself is a gift. But then it goes on to say what? That we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for righteous deeds, for good works. But even the good works, brethren, is a part of this gracious salvation. So that from the very root to the fruit, the whole thing is grace. Or perhaps put another way, our justification and sanctification are the result of the groom's grace. Thus the bride is described, or I could even maybe put it this way. What we really have here is a description of the bride glorious. We have a description of the, of the bride glorified. Now when, we, when we're glorified, when our souls are perfected and our bodies are raised and glorified, then we will be both positionally and practically righteous. Now, for all eternity, we have to still make a distinction between the two because the grounds of our acceptance, the reason we're in heaven is because of the blood of Jesus Christ, his righteousness, right? Nobody goes to heaven because of their righteous deeds or their righteous acts, even as a Christian. Our righteous deeds or acts don't merit or warrant heaven. And for all eternity, we'll be casting down our crowns at the, at the uh, feet of the one who alone is worthy. But I think here it's just, it's blending these together to say that on that day, on that final wedding day when Jesus comes back, we will be perfectly righteous both with regards to our position and our practice. We're going to be sinless. We're going to be righteous in the fullest sense of that term. So our garments, yes, with, re- with reference to that which uh, merits or earns our salvation and our relationship with the groom for all eternity at this blessed supper is that of Jesus' righteousness. But remember, everybody who is justified is sanctified and here they all without exception are glorified. And I think that's the point. I think really this text uh, in, in Revelation 19.8 is uh, basically saying the same thing as Ephesians 5, 25, 6, and 7. If you remember, I, I'll give you a, a short version of that. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's 25. And then in verse 27, that he might present her to himself because verse 26 that I skip speaks about our initial salvation. And then 27, our ultimate salvation. And that says that he shed his blood as the lamb, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now that has reference to uh, our glorification. The fact that, yes, our, 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 our position, our, um, our guilt has been removed by his blood. We've been justified freely by his grace. We've been sanctified gradually throughout the whole course of our life. And now we've been glorified. And there's not one speck, there's not one dark spot upon our soul's body and soul. Now I want you to think with me for a second. If we were at a wedding. And... um, There's, there's certain spots in the wedding that I, I tend to favor. I think, like most people, my favorite time of a wedding, or at least one of my favorite times of a wedding, is when the bride comes through the doors. And everybody, according to tradition, rightfully stands up. And there she comes, typically being escorted by a father or somebody similar. And she's beautifully arrayed. And uh, usually the poor guy that's standing to my left is, is beginning to tremble and sometimes even begin to express emotion through the eye gates. And it's, usual, it's usually true, at least half the time for me, even if it's not my daughter, that I tend to get emotional at that point too. Because here she comes. She's beautifully arrayed for her groom. Well, here comes the church. Now, the the difference being, obviously, she's beautifully arrayed and dressed with the merit and the grace given her by the groom. Now, in a human marriage, the groom, at least traditionally, doesn't even see The bride, and he didn't do anything to beautify her. But in this wedding, brethren, he did everything to beautify her. Her beauty is the result of his grace. But this is is the presentation, the text I I quoted from Ephesians 5.28, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Clean and bright, dressed in his righteousness and arrayed in the righteous acts of the saints. And here she comes down the aisle and brethren, our beloved Savior, looks upon her with a heart that's been for her from her very conception in the eternal purposes of God. This is in one sense when she was given to him. And this is now when he gets her in the most fullest sense. So that's the bride. And then notice the supper, verse 9. Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now let me remind you that within Jewish culture, marriage took place in two stages. There was betrothal and then consummation. And there was uh, a rather lengthy time often, often between those two stages. The couple was first betrothed. 
which resulted in actual marriage. Because remember, Joseph and Mary were only betrothed, but they were married and he was going to divorce her because he thought she was unfaithful. Even though the marriage hadn't consummated yet, they were legally married. The first step resulted in legal marriage. It's not like what we do with um, engagement, right? Our engagement isn't one for one with betrothal. Because when we get engaged, it doesn't mean really anything other than we've promised to marry. But uh, betrothal meant marriage. It was marriage. They were legally married. But they hadn't consummated the marriage yet. That means, simply put, they lived differently. Or they, they lived separately. And so between these two events, betrothment and consummation, there was a lengthy time wherein the groom, guess what the groom did between these two events, these two stages? He prepared a home for his bride. Thus, while the couple was truly married and enjoyed a measure of intimacy, they were married. The marriage wasn't consummated until the supper. And this is obviously true, brethren, with regards to Christ and his bride. We are betrothed to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11. Now, we are married to Jesus as Christians. But we live separately in one sense. He in heaven and we on earth. And what did he say that he's doing now during this interval? John 14, if I go away, I prepare a place for you. He's preparing a place for us. And when that place is prepared, guess what he's going to do? He's going to come back and there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb and there's going to be a consummation. That simply means that we're going to live with him and we're going to enjoy fellowship with him in the new heavens and earth that we only had a taste of. Before that, I don't know what the Jews did if they allowed the, uh, the betrothed to hold hands. Let's just say for the sake of illustration, they're betrothed, they're married, they're allowed to hold hands. There was an intimacy that was there. Their affections were properly aroused within that, those confines of holding hands. They loved each other. And they could express that love in tangible ways in a modest degree. But what would that be, brethren, in comparison to the supper that would come when the relationship would be consummated? It would be but a foretaste of good things to come. And that's exactly the way it is now. We're, as it were, married and we hold hands with him. We have fellowship with him. We have communion with him. But brethren, it's likened to the appetizer to the feast to come. And that's why it's likened to a supper. What is a, a supper in biblical, uh, in biblical days? It, 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 it underscored fellowship. Right? That's why we're not even to eat with somebody who is excommunicated from the church. It doesn't mean necessarily that you can't eat. The idea is fellowship. That which typically goes on at the dinner table. There's fellowship. There's intimacy. There's communion. And this supper, brethren, is, is symbolic of the fact 
that when Jesus comes back, the marriage is consummated and we will know unending, heightened degrees that never fade, that never lessen, that always increase for all eternity. We will know that fellowship and communion that we know now, but only in a very dim degree. That little bit that we know now, brethren, is but the foretaste of that glory divine. It's only when he comes back where the marriage supper of the Lamb take place and we will live with him upon the new heavens and earth. It's only then the marriage will be consummated and it's only then and there that we will enjoy unending, uninterrupted fellowship with our beloved groom. Charles Spurgeon has... uh, several volumes and you can get them in 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 different packaging uh, you can get them in two volumes i have that one you can get it in one volume but it's called my sermon notes and they're really just um he just or somebody took his sermons and just took the the outlines put them in this book with a few paragraphs that flesh out some of the main points so he has, of course, as you could imagine, several sermons on Revelation 19.9. I didn't take the time to look them up, but I did look up his outline in my one volume of his notes. And he has this paragraph towards the end that summarizes, at least in part, what is entailed here under the imagery of a supper. And he says, we dare not say that our Lord will love us more than he loves us now. But we will indulge his love for us more. He will manifest it more. Remember, we hold hands now, but the relationship is consummated. We shall see more of it. We shall understand it better. He will lay open his whole heart and soul to us with all of its feelings and secrets and purposes and allow us to know them as far at least as we can understand them. And it will result to our happiness to know them. And so... Our relationship with our groom is described here in terms of an everlasting banquet or supper or feast that would have lasted for the Jews probably a week or perhaps two weeks. Depends upon the income of the parents. But brother, what is a week? What if they were the wealthiest parents on the planet and they could extend that banquet to last a full month? But brethren, what is that in comparison to the everlasting joys and bliss that Jesus' bride will know at the supper of the marriage of the Lamb? And verse 10, in closing, he falls at the feet of the angel that reveals him, that reveals to him this great truth. 
But the angel responds, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. In other words, worship only the lamb. Worship only the groom. For the groom alone is worthy. And then he ends with this little statement that you're tempted to preach a whole sermon about. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, the heart. That's what he means by spirit of prophecy. It's a, it's a it's lowercase s, rightly so. The heart, the spirit, the essence of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. In other words, the whole Old Testament, including this prophecy of John's, the whole Bible, all of prophecy, Old Testament, New Testament, is all about Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the heart and the spirit of all prophecy, including this one. So don't worship me. Give all the worship to the one who alone is worthy. And that's the lamb who's a lion. Well, we, uh, I messed it up and we was going to sing hymn three, but would sing hymn 718 in its place. Let me turn there quickly and see if I can somehow tie this hymn into our devotion. It's not going to be easy to do. This is a, a, what I would call a mission hymn. This is one of the hymns we sing almost every day in the mission. Leaning on the everlasting arms.